The readings from the New Testament tonight can be found on page two of your bulletin. Mark 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. From John 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. Father, we've come here with some measure of faith. Some of us, maybe just with the smallest bit that got us here to respond to a friend's invite. Some of us uh, feeling like we're hanging on by a thread. Others of us feeling perhaps strong in faith. Some of us with misplaced faith. But Lord, you say that even the smallest amount of faith can have big results. And so we now commit before you that when you speak through your word, we know we can have life. And we pray you would bring that life to us. In Christ's name, amen. The Christian faith teaches that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. We're looking at the second half of that. The humanity of Jesus Christ. And we're starting with the feelings of Jesus. Last week we talked about the compassion of Jesus. And this week we're going to talk about the anger of Jesus. When you consider the effects of anger throughout the history of the world, I think it's fair to ask the question, can anything good come of anger? Think about all the destruction, the anger that leads to terrorist attacks, genocide, murder, all sorts of assaults, slander, gossip, verbal abuse, the wounds of minds and hearts, all because of one feeling. This one feeling causing all of that destruction in seed form. And the impact goes beyond individuals. Uh, Dan Allender, who is a Christian therapist, psychologist, says that when anger is sustained for a period of time in a culture, in a people group, 
It weaves its way into their language, their symbols, but it also becomes the new norm. And I think there's some fair questions about, has that happened in American society in the last five years, ten years? And of course, the Bible speaks a lot about unrighteous anger, warns us that we shouldn't associate with hot-tempered people because it can be contagious. The New Testament says that the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. That sort of anger can't result in the righteousness that God sees, which includes love, justice, peace, all those things. Yet, the scripture also says this, God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. God is a righteous judge who feels indignation, righteous anger every day. You see lots of examples of this in the scripture, his anger over false worship, his anger about exploiting the vulnerable, his anger about defiling his name or worship. In the very gospel, in the center of it sits this idea of righteous anger, the Christian gospel. That God has a right to bring his righteous anger against us for our unrighteous anger and all our different forms of sin. And yet, in the person of his son, he actually absorbs that righteous anger on the cross. He bears the wrath. On the cross, Jesus was drinking the cup of God's wrath. His righteous anger for sinners. For those that trust in him. So as much as the Bible testifies about the vice of unrighteous anger, it also testifies to the virtue of righteous anger. And it's not just the Bible that sees some good in it. In the last decade, there's been research done on the positive effects of anger. Some studies out of Columbia University that say that the feedback that anger delivers into relationships can make them healthier. That short-term anger can actually produce creativity. And anger can actually enhance your rationality. Like all emotions, anger is a response, this is a quote, that organizes our thinking and our physiology so we effectively face a particular type of challenge, fight or flight. And so while we can acknowledge the damage of unrighteous anger, we have to also acknowledge positive effects of good anger. This past Monday, about 30 of us gathered at um, a home of one of our members and read through uh, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And it really was something to just read through the entire letter together and there's so many things that you experience. One, it's brilliance. Two, it's grace. But also running through the letter is righteous anger. And did that righteous anger produce good? Yes, it did. So we shouldn't be surprised that the life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, had displays of this sort of anger. In fact, you find it recorded quite a bit. Jesus was vexed. 
He was furious. He was enraged. He chided people. He rebuked people. He pronounced woes. He said of King Herod, the wicked King Herod, he called him a fox. He said of the religious hypocrites, the leaders, he referred to them as serpents, ravenous wolves, children of the devil. Theologian B.B. Warfield, who I mentioned, has written an essay on the emotions of Jesus, said, Jesus' anger is not merely the seamy side of his pity. It is the righteous reaction of his moral sense in the presence of evil. He burned with anger against the wrongs he met in his journey through life as truly as he melted with pity at the sight of the world's misery. And it was out of these two emotions that his mercy proceeded. Isn't that interesting? He's saying that the mercy of God just didn't come from compassion. It was actually righteous anger and compassion that gave way to mercy. And so, as we're considering the feelings of the Son of God, Jesus, and our own feelings, let's look at righteous anger together and the focus of it. Now, as we start to do that, there's a fundamental thing we have to get straight. And that is uh, the definition of what is righteous anger. Righteous anger is a response to real sin, not my preferences. It's a response to transgressions of the law of God, not my personal laws. So I might get angry because people don't listen to me well. I might get angry because someone says no to an invitation to go on a date. I might get angry because someone leaves their shoes on the stairs. By the way, I'm including all of us in this because you might have said... Glenn, you're married. Should you be uh, dates? This is the we, okay? We might get angry at someone that talks during a movie. We might get angry at someone that likes the back end park. We might get angry at someone that really loves private school, someone that really loves uh, public school, someone that really loves Christian classical school, right? All these different things, a long list of the things that get us angry day in and day out. But the question is, is it righteous anger? Does it transgress the law of God? And most of the time it doesn't. The fact that people don't load the dishwasher like me or put the toilet roll on like me is not, as far as I have found yet, even though I study the law of God, I have not found justification for anger. But there are many things worthy of your righteous anger. And I want to just mention three that we see displayed in the life of Jesus. First of all, Jesus had righteous anger because of indifference toward human suffering. Righteous anger about indifference toward human suffering, especially arrogant indifference. So Jesus enters the synagogue. You heard it read. He comes into the synagogue, and there is a man with a deformed hand. And it's a bit of a setup, because the religious leaders want to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath, and by their understanding, no work at all is to be done on the Sabbath. And so Jesus poses the question, is it lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to save a life or kill a life? And as he says that, he is offering them the opportunity to repent. 
He's offering them the opportunity to lay down their status, their legalism, their control of God's law, all these different things that sort of make up why they're constantly opposing Jesus. And yet they don't say a thing. And Jesus becomes indignant that they would continue on in this pride in the face of this needy man. That they would care more about winning the argument rather than the suffering that's going on. And in his heart, there is pain at this gross pride, but there's also reaction to it. It's righteous anger. And we can experience the same, right? When we hear that needy supplies for a war-torn area were diverted into the black market or taken by corrupt leaders. We feel righteous anger when unsafe drinking water, the fact that it was hidden from the public to their own harm because certain leaders didn't want to admit what was going on and their fault of countless unborn babies that won't see the light of day because men and women prefer their authority of freedom. We would have righteous anger over an innocent man that's falsely in prison and the people in charge of the case won't reopen it because they'll lose face. Righteous anger. Righteous anger at a church who basically says to an abuse victim, we'll just handle this in-house. We won't go to the authorities. And by the way, you should just forgive and forget about this. Righteous anger when a majority culture refuses to give up its, its privileges to allow other people have power in a way in and the seat at the table. There's lots of appropriate reasons why we would have righteous anger. And when we do that, we're modeling the life of Jesus Christ. And the gospel tells us that the Son of God came... And laid down his preferences. You know, he, he actually had the law of God on his side. But Christ comes, he lays aside his glory. Why? So that you and I might discover what it means to be renewed. That we, might, that we actually might be transformed from the slavery of unrighteous anger. To knowing what righteous anger is. So first of all. Anger about indifference towards human suffering. Second of all, anger at oppression of evil and death. This is sort of a strange one. I think when we get to this idea uh, of righteousness, righteous anger because of evil oppression, evil people causing harm, causing violence, or even spiritual evil, when you find Jesus casting out demons, he would rebuke them, righteous anger again. But when it comes to things like disease and death, we scratch our heads. Because we've been told in modern culture that these are natural things. Right? These are things that we should just accept. But it's very interesting, Jesus does not have that view of death and disease. And we see it at the tomb of Lazarus. He has righteous anger. We're we're told that he comes before the tomb and he has two reactions. One is he weeps. Even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still weeps. He enters into the grief of Mary and Martha. And we talked a bit about that stuff last week. But actually, the primary emotion 
which is recorded two times, is not his weeping. We're told he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Now, that's an unusual Greek word. And when it's under-translated, it's translated he was touched or he was simply moved. But what's missing from that translation is that he was angry. He was indignant. Martin Luther in the Zurich Bible would translate it, he was angry, disgusted, and enraged. And the German word has the uh, image of a war horse that's snorting before going into battle. John Calvin would say that Christ didn't come to the tomb as an idle spectator. He came as a champion preparing for conflict. This is the disposition that was the primary feeling Jesus had as he stood before the grave. And it goes to the core reason or how Christians see death differently. You know, we might talk about secondary causes and primary causes. Now, most folks, uh, you know, when we see uh, someone in their 20s succumb to cancer, when we see a child born with a fatal gene mutation, or even someone that dies of old age, we see that as the primary cause of death. But actually, that's not how Scripture understands it. It's not how Jesus understands it. That's actually the secondary cause of death. Ultimately, evil and sin are the cause of death. When you go to uh, Genesis chapter 3, and many of you are familiar with that passage, in Genesis 3, the serpent, who represents Satan, comes into the garden with the aim of tempting our first human parents, the first man and woman. His aim, but his goal is not to simply tempt them to doubt and to sin. His goal is to orchestrate their death. That's his goal. Because he understands that if they turn from the Lord of life and they transgress the law of God, they'll suffer not only physical death, the curse of it, but also spiritual death. And so as Jesus stands before the grave Again, uh, John Calvin says he burns with rage against the oppressor of men. The one that holds the tyranny of death over you and I. I mean, death is just plain wrong. And, you know, we're fools when we're told we should just simply accept it. Yes, it's natural, but it is abnormal natural, if you can say that. It's wrong. It's not part of God's original intention And the Lord of life comes and submits to the judgment of death that he might remove it from it. So imagine Jesus standing before the grave. He sees his friend has died. And maybe on the outside, people are seeing some tears and seeing him quiet. But inside, he is raging because he knows the ultimate reason for this death and every death and every evil thing and every disease This is the righteous anger of Christ. One writer said, The raising of Lazarus becomes a decisive instant, an open symbol of Jesus conquering death and hell. And so when you and I experience any sort of death, it's appropriate to be angry, to have righteous anger about it. Even if it's a 95-year-old grandparent who died in their sleep, It's still appropriate to go, yeah, I praise God for the life that they had and the mercy he had, but I'm angry they're not here. 
And I'm angry that my kids won't get to know them. I'm angry for the violence that happens. And I'm angry about every sin and temptation that destroys people. And it's a precursor to death. And I'm angry about the tempter and the adversary that works day in and day out to draw people into death. To fool them into death. To destroy themselves. This is righteous anger that God's people are to have. But thirdly and lastly, Jesus displays a righteous anger for those that obstruct access to God. People that hinder access to God. You see this twice, one in an account we didn't have read, and Jesus is angry at his own disciples. Some adults come to bring children so that they might have a chance to have Jesus hold them and bless them. And the disciples rebuke the people. So you can imagine, you know, you hear Jesus is in town and you love your kid. You love your grandkid, just like we presented. Imagine if I'm about ready to do a baptism, someone stands up and rebukes me that I would trouble God with something like that. And Jesus sees that, and we're told when he saw it, he was indignant. The second one you heard read, and it may be one of the most famous ones, where Jesus cleansed the temple. At the temple, there was a lot of sacrificing of animals going on. And so maybe what began as a good intention, so that foreigners wouldn't have to, you know, trek their animals over all these miles, there were animals that were there to be sold. But clearly it moved from that into just selfish commerce. And the worst part about it is, basically, they set up house in the one space that non-Jewish people could pray and worship God. The one area. And Jesus sees that, he's irate, he forms a whip, and he begins to turn tables over. And, you know, we're not told whether or not he actually struck people. You know, we're sort of left wondering. But he is not happy, saying that you've defiled the house of God. Now, there's two things in both those accounts. Why was he angry? First of all, both groups, both the disciples and the money changers, assumed that they were gatekeepers for God. And they assumed that they knew who was valuable to God. The money changers thought, you know, the Gentiles really aren't that important to God. Even though Isaiah talked about all these prophecies of the nations coming to God. You know, we can set up here, it's not going to be a big deal. Or the disciples going, listen, these kids, we got people that have pressing needs. These kids, they made a, it wasn't theirs to make a value judgment. And whenever you and I step in and do that, whenever we think, you know, God actually values people that have my theology. God values people that sort of share my ministry convictions. God uh, values people that care about the causes about I. And people that don't and are opposed to it, well, you know, I'm not quite sure how he values them. Or where they are to get any airtime with him. And the other part of this was, in the temple, it was basically uh, an example of personal agenda. Personal agenda preventing people from accessing God. And so, I began thinking, you know, what are ways that a church can do that? Maybe it focuses 
its ministry needs primarily on the people that are there and not so much so the people that aren't there. You know, now more than ever, I think the church is going to be tempted to uh, not work hard for seekers to find God because there's more tension in the culture. There's more anger. And, you know, it may show up in a lot of ways, meaning when someone might happen in, they can't understand anything that's being said because the language is all religious ease. Or it may be that, you know, it's clear that uh, there's certain, you know, uh, earthly convictions here, whether it's political convictions or cultural convictions. It might again be, uh, you know, a minority culture feeling like, you know, I'm really not welcome here as a full member. And so, we've got to ask ourselves these questions. Is there any way that I might be impeding, by my own personal preferences, impeding people from seeking God? Jesus was righteously angry about that, and we should be angry about it too. When we feel like, you know, there are ten steps that people need to go through before they can appear before God with their need. And they're suffering. So, in closing, while Jesus displayed this righteous anger, remember why he did it. One, it was right that he did it, and it reflected the glory of God. But two, it was an opportunity to be humbled. And so, even as he loves us, And at some point, if he shows his displeasure to us, no, it's so that you might come nearer to him, that you might be brought near to him, and that anger ultimately is a redemption weapon. And this is where it's, this, this is where it is so different than in the way it operates in our world and in our lives. You know, I, if you ask me, there is a primary sin that I have battled for my entire life. It's been anger. That might surprise some of you. It wouldn't surprise Meg. It wouldn't surprise my kids. Those of you that are close to me. I grew up uh, from generations of people that just didn't do anger well. Right? And so it really takes, and I see the same thing in the world. I joked last week, you know, every car horn, not every car horn, some of them are righteous anger, right? (laughs) But, you know, if you just listen to the city early in the morning, it's already angry. People are angry. We're angry. There's not a sinful person that doesn't see that in them. But here's the thing. We often get less confused. For years, I kind of thought, well, I guess anger is just bad. And some of you maybe grew up in homes where no anger was allowed to be showed. And that's what made you really angry. But there is an expression of good and righteous anger. But we have to learn it from God because we certainly don't see it displayed before us in our world or in social media. There's a helpful definition here from... um, Dan Allender, I put it in your reflection. Righteous anger invites change. It can envision what the other might look like if the arrogance controlling the heart was pierced. Anger is a surgical weapon designed to destroy ugliness and restore beauty. In the hands of one who is trained in love, 
and who can envision beauty, the knife of righteous anger is a weapon for restoration. That's a wonderful definition of what Jesus was doing. And so, I want to leave you with a couple questions. One, what do you get angry about? Think about it this week. Pay attention to it. What do you don't get angry about? And is the anger that you have, is it something that you find reflected in the life of Jesus or mostly just the life of the world? God means to change us even this way, even with our feelings, even with anger. Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you for your advocacy. We thank you for Jesus' righteous anger. We thank you that um, every assault that we've experienced, every wound that we experience, every evil we experience, you're mad about. You're angry about. And us knowing that you'll take that seriously holds us back from vengeance. We pray that you might teach us and shepherd us. And even in this way, we might become like Christ. In his name, amen.